Welcome to Immigration Nerds. This podcast is for everyone seeking the details, context, and facts behind the banner headlines on immigration. It's the podcast that gives you the latest on immigration policy and politics and the real world impacts on the people and businesses that make our world turn. If you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by the nerds at Erickson Immigration Group, guiding clients and their employees through the complex immigration system for over 20 years. Hello, immigration nerds. I'm Lauren Clark, senior attorney at Erickson Immigration Group. I am a fellow nerd, an immigrant, and host of this amazing podcast. In every episode, we're joined by the smartest nerds in the know as we cover trends in business, culture, technology, and politics at the intersection of global immigration. It's 2024, and today we are kicking off our new season with a look at a powerful new book about U.S. immigration law and the criminal justice system. Coming up in just a few minutes, we'll be joined by Cesar Cuauhtémoc Gracia Hernández, author of a powerful new book just released by the New Press, Welcome the Wretched, in defense of the criminal alien. But first, let's get everyone up to speed on the latest immigration news we should all be aware of. Welcoming back our news nerd-in-chief, Ericsson Immigration Group partner, Rob Taylor. Happy New Year, Rob. Hi, Lauren. It's great to be back and Happy New Year. So, Rob, I'm sure there is a lot to catch up on, but what tops the news feed? Let's get started with USCIS. So in late December, USCIS issued a policy guidance regarding F&M student visa holders. So the guidance isn't necessarily new, but consolidates existing policy. So I think of interest to some of our listeners would be that it does clarify that if F&M visa student holders maintain a foreign residence while they're in the U.S. and demonstrate intent to depart the U.S., they are able to be the beneficiary of a PERM application, which is the first step in the green card process, or they can also be the beneficiary of an immigrant visa petition. USCIS also confirmed that F1 students on OPT may work for startups as long as the company is able to provide a commensurate salary and also maintain a valid training plan. I think as we saw with the H-1B memo that came out towards the end of last year, there isn't anything necessarily new in this new student memo, but it does consolidate a lot of the previous guidance and standalone memos that USCIS has relied on and should hopefully just make things a little bit more clear for students moving forward. Additionally, on January the 8th, USCIS issued a final rule increase stating that fees will go up and it's expected probably in early April at this point. The fees, as we've discussed in the past, are significant, so companies should be taking these into account as they're planning their budgets for 2024. And along the lines of fee increases, there also was an announcement that premium processing will increase as of February 26th. So right now, for most employment-based petitions, the current premium processing fee is $2,500, and that fee will go up to $2,805, as I mentioned before, on February the 26th. So again, given that a lot of employment-based petitions utilize premium processing, it would be important for companies to take this fee increase into account as they're planning for their budgets for the upcoming year. Moving over to the Department of State, we wanted to remind folks that the H-1B Visa Renewal Pilot Program commences on January the 29th. So we've covered this previously, but just a reminder that there are a limited number of applications that will be accepted, and there are certain criteria for individuals to qualify. Uh, If any individual is interested in potentially participating in the program and has any questions about it, I'd encourage them to check out our website. 
They can search under Domestic H-1B Visa Renewal Pilot Program and find out more information there. They're always welcome to email us as well if there's any specific questions. Given that it is a limited program, some additional news that came out from the Department of State, which is good, is that they also plan to waive in-person interview requirements for certain applicants. Specifically, they've said that if an individual has previously been issued a visa, they're now applying for a visa in their country of residence, and they've not previously been denied a visa, uh, they should be eligible for a waiver of the in-person interview. With that said, it is done at the discretion of the consulate, but we do expect it to be pretty widely implemented given the significant wait times at many U.S. consulates abroad, and hopefully this will speed up the visa application process for folks outside of the U.S. Lastly, the U.S. spending bill saga continues. So unfortunately, no final bill has been passed, but there was another stopgap measure that was put in place that will keep the government open through early March. And so the government's not shutting down at the moment, so we don't expect there to be any impact at the consulates with the Department of Labor, but we'll probably have an update for our listeners again next month as we near that March 1st date. There are some big and I'm sure welcome changes coming into effect and a lot to look forward to. So thank you for those news updates, Rob. Yep, thank you. Now for a conversation with the author of Welcome the Wretched in Defense of the Criminal Alien. Cesar Cotamoc Gracia Hernandez is an immigration lawyer and law professor at The Ohio State University, and he joins us now from Denver, Colorado. Cesar, welcome to the Immigration Nerds Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you and with all of your listeners. Cesar, in the book, you argue that no matter what limits and laws are in place, people will not stop trying to move across borders to reunite with family or make a better life. I'm reminded of the Emmer Lazarus poem at the base of the Statue of Liberty that reads in part, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe three. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Says, who were the wretched you were writing about in your book? Yeah, I think you're, you're very much spot on when you reference that famous, fabulous poem that has been attached physically to the base of the Statue of Liberty. But I think more importantly than that, symbolically, it's been attached to the story of immigration over the, the centuries in the United States. It's obviously a very romanticized uh, version of immigration. Those of us who are immersed day in and day out with the practice of immigration law or with the lives of migrants in any corner of this country know that it is the story of immigration is also a very complicated one. One that is as much about welcoming newcomers as it is about trying to divvy up potential newcomers and decide those who are desirable new residents of our communities and those who are not. And yet, when I chose the title of the new book, Welcome the Wretched, I very much wanted to focus on those folks who are in the hardest of circumstances and those folks who are most easily depicted as unworthy of building a life or continuing a life in the United States, precisely because this is a country that has, from the very beginning, um, been one that is populated by people whose character is complex, illustrating the finest qualities that we might want in a person, and oftentimes also revealing the worst that we would hope never to see. In a person. Those are the folks who I really want to focus on in this book. Ordinary people who mess up in more 
mundane ways. And I think that's all of us, the wretched. is really highlighting the fact that at one moment or another, we're all the wretched because we all mess up. We all engage in behavior that is regrettable. And I'm not immune from that and no one else is. And it has nothing to do with our citizenship and everything to do with our humanity. And I think that's a key theme of, you know, your research and the book is that the wretchedness isn't based on your citizenship or your origin. And yet somehow we've ended up in this situation where immigration policies are so intertwined with criminal law. Can you help our listeners with a little bit of the history and kind of understand like when did immigration policy in the United States become intertwined with criminal law? Yeah, in the earliest days, the development of federal immigration law, really in the late 19th century and early 20th century, when Congress first started getting into the work of deciding who could come into the United States and who could not, they were really focused on things like race, national origin, and used that most explicitly to target Chinese and then folks from other parts of Asia, and eventually in the early 20th century, folks from Southern and Eastern Europe. But it's really not until the end of the 20th century, really beginning in the 1980s, when Congress and starts working with the president at that time, Ronald Reagan, and eventually the other administrations later on, to focus on crime as being the marker of undesirability and really targeting folks who have had a run-in with the criminal legal system as being an indicator that, you know, these are not people who we want in our communities. These are not people who we think are fit for residence in the United States. And as a result, changing federal immigration law so that it made it easier to run into immigration problems, detention, deportation, exclusion. As a result, having growing list of types of criminal activity on one's record and also simultaneously made it harder to get out of that immigration, prison, and deportation pipeline once put into it. And specifically, we see that during that period of time, beginning in the mid-80s through the latter part of the 1990s, Congress gets rid of power that judges overseeing criminal prosecutions had to basically bar what was done the Immigration Naturalization Service from using a particular conviction as the basis of immigration proceedings. At the same time, Congress gets rid of longstanding options that immigration judges had. They say, well, yes, you committed this crime, and obviously that's not good, but here's all the positive aspects of your life that I think outweigh that negative aspect. And so we're going to let you continue to live the life that you already have here in the United States. And as a result, it becomes easier to fall into immigration law problems and harder to escape from those problems once that process begins, and that entanglement of criminal law and immigration law begins really in that period when the Reagan administration is trying to demonize migrants of color in particular as being involved with, with illicit drug activity, that has really never stopped and eventually becomes wrapped up in the post-September 11, 2001 frenzy about terrorism. And so the dynamics change a little bit. The focus in that period becomes on Arabs and Muslims, and now we see that evolve again more recently, but we still continue to emphasize any contact with the criminal legal system as being the hallmark of undesirability. And this is so beautifully depicted in your book. I found this to be one of the things that I loved most and that I thought had the most powerful effect is that you start each chapter with a story of a real person who has become caught up in the immigration and criminal justice system. I guess to start, can you tell us why you chose to structure the book that way? Because immigration is all about people. It's all about ordinary people who have some good, and have some bad. And oftentimes they think we only see one side of those. When we listen to elected officials who are, who are adamant about 
restricting access to the United States, we hear a lot about the negative side of things. And then when we encounter these people in our lives, in our daily lives, it's easy to just focus on the positive side of things. But in reality, lots of us, most of us, if not all of us, carry some of both. And so I talk about people like my dear friend, Patty, who is an Ivy League graduate or a decades-long committed social worker at a high school in Brooklyn, New York, who likes to cheer on the Mexican soccer team and, you know, to annoy the hell out of me in the way that really good friends do of one another. And yet I also know, because I know her so well, I, I, I know about that moment decades earlier when along with her mother, she ran across the U.S.-Mexican border. I mean, that was the beginning of the story that brings her into my life eventually and brings her into the lives of these high school students in Brooklyn in the course of her work as a social worker today. But it never undoes the fact that it started with violating immigration law in a way that these days results in thousands of people, adults being prosecuted, adults like Patty's mother, being prosecuted for federal crimes in federal district courts along all of the Southwest, the crimes of illegal entry and illegal re-entry. And so I can just imagine some restrictionist politician saying, oh yeah, these two people did exactly what's the problem. They committed a federal crime in doing that. And to me, seeing where I am, thinking about my dear friend, I think, good, I'm glad. Because had Doña Francis, my friend's mom, not decided to do that, then her daughter would never have become part of my life. And as a result, that I would be missing something that I value, that I cherish on a daily basis. Um, and so it's important, I think, for me to encourage readers to think there are people all around us who are some of everything. And it, it's just as problematic to focus on the good as it is to focus on the bad, because that's siloing people. That's focusing on one slice of their lives, when just like all of us who were born into our U.S. citizenship, migrants, no matter where they come from, are mixed complex bag of contradictory sentiments and, and action. And I hope that through those descriptions of individual people with which I study soccer, it'll invite the reader to think about the humans who are at the base of every debate about immigration law and policy, but to do so in that holistic, complex way that is true of all of us, no matter where we were born. That is definitely one thing that I think we try to celebrate here on the Immigration Nerds podcast is the positive impact of immigrants and their whole identity and how they impact their communities. Indeed, we've actually gone into a lot of statistics that demonstrate that they continually do have a positive impact. Why do you believe that this often gets lost in the eyes of the public and tends to end up more in this rhetoric of criminality of migrants? Some of it is because the details of the impact that migrants have, it's hard to follow and hard to get the information. It, yeah, it's the results of empirical analyses about economic impacts and impacts in labor markets. All of it is complicated, right? It's difficult to understand under the best of circumstances and the reality is that we are all busy people. So, you know, we don't all have the best of circumstances to focus on, you know, studies that economic impacts or rates of criminal activity by U.S.-born people versus people born abroad. And so I think it's really understandable, but it's also because the politics of migration are so skewed. 
there's very little appetite among elected officials and politicians and candidates for political office to really engage with the complexity of migration and how migrants fit into life in the 21st century. And as a result, we see these very skewed perspectives. And that's my very point. Right? Families do include felons. Felons do have families, and those people are no less integral. Their relationships with their parents and their children and their siblings and their cousins and their neighbors is no less complicated than the relationships that any of us have who have not been adjudicated through the criminal legal system and, and found guilty of some felony. And so to describe superficially migrants as fitting into one camp of desirable people or in one or another camp of undesirable people is it's far too simplistic, and unfortunately, I think that lends itself to the kind of poor discussions about public policy that we have in the United States when it comes to immigration. Another aspect of the book that I think is actually clearly demonstrated by the 21 Savage example is that this kind of undesirability marker isn't equal to all migrants. It also highlights issues within the system that they're having to operate. And I mean, primarily the power of having legal representation, which isn't always available to individuals that may be facing themselves in this mix of immigration and criminal law. Can you walk us a little bit through the inclusion of the 21 Savage example? Yeah, so for any of your listeners who are not fans of hip-hop, 21 Savage is a luminary within the hip-hop scene that emanates from Atlanta, Georgia. He's a character. He has like a dagger tattooed onto his forehead. He's quite popular. He was born in the UK. And he originally came to the United States as a child with his parents. His father came here to work had a non-immigrant visa. And so at some point, father's permission to be in the United States expired. And at least the, the mother and, and 21 Savage um, continued to live in the U.S. In the Atlanta area, eventually as the story unfolds, he becomes this rapper and receives an immense amount of accolades because of his artistic abilities. Well, he sings about gang violence. Um, he sings about violence generally. And so he one day uh, he ends up getting arrested by ICE, by the Immigration Customs Enforcement Agency, and he gets sent to a detention center in Georgia. And there he's able to access uh, a fantastic lawyer who is actually able to show the immigration judge that there was an old conviction on his record that had been vacated. Right? And so as far as immigration law is concerned, that conviction no longer existed. And so it's the basis for ICE's detention and, and an attempts to, to deport him. And so he's able, his attorney is able to get um, 21 Savage uh, released, but ICE insists that he is deportable and he is, no one denies the fact that he overstayed his visa. And he eventually, just a few months ago, actually received a uh, cancellation of the removal. Um, and so is now a, a permanent resident but all because he had some excellent legal representation. But this is a guy who they went after ostensibly because he was you know, a criminal alien. When in reality, as a legal matter, there was no crime. And 21 Savage was able to take on ICE successfully. Only because the reality is he makes a good amount of money. He has resources at his disposal and was able to, to leverage those. And also, you know, there was a good amount of publicity. And so, so, so the book really kind of weaves in and out of this public perception of the criminality of migrants, as well as flaws within the system itself, including immigration prisons. 
from the stories that you tell in the book and the research that you did for it, what is it that you feel the U.S. immigration system needs to address? My primary hope for writing this book um, specifically focused on folks whose backgrounds are messy, right, to say the least, um, is, is to highlight just how common this is in all of our families today, but also in the past. And so the first thing I hope that the book accomplishes is uh, it gives people a reason to think hard about their own lives and about the lives of their family members alive or the past. The hope that that gives us a more honest perspective on migration to the United States and on the migrants themselves. Because so often I hear folks whose immigration story goes back several generations, say something along the lines of, well, my family members, they did it right. They came here, they worked hard, they stayed out of trouble, and that's what people today should do. And if they don't, then yes, pain them, deport them. And one of the things I find quite often when I have those kinds of conversations is, is that if I push just a little bit, that often I start to identify wrinkles in that story. One of the examples I write about in the book is about conversations I had with my wife's grandmother, the first of her Italian family to be born in the United States. By the time I came around, she was around 90 and liked to tell me about how different her family history was from the history of migrants today. And as I had these conversations with her, it became clear to me that her family's immigration history was also featured violations of immigration law. It's just that she didn't realize this because she doesn't understand immigration laws that existed at the beginning of the 20th century. And I don't blame her for that. Why would she? But her family came in violation of what we call the Contract Labor Act, which were bars from the late 19th century to the early 20th century on people who were coming here who already had a job in hand. It was a way of protecting U.S. workers. And we can have whatever opinions we want about laws like that, but that was law at the time. And my wife's grandmother is super proud of her father and his family who came here. You know, my point to her was like, look, your family was violating immigration law too from the sound of it. And that's okay. I'm glad. On a personal level, because had your father not violated immigration law, you wouldn't have been born in Philadelphia. And then your daughter wouldn't have been my mother-in-law. And then her daughter, my wife, wouldn't be here. And, you know, I can follow the chain pretty easily to think about the impact that that would have on my personal life. There is something far more complicated about these stories of immigration law today. And certainly when we think about immigration over the course of the history of this country. And so that's my fundamental hope is it really encourages people to take a hard look at their personal histories of immigration to the U.S. and also the way in which those personal histories are skewed or incomplete and how that is problematic when we then take those personal stories and use them as the basis for laws and policies that govern all of us. Well, Cesar Cotemacracia Hernandez, congratulations on the publication of your new book. And I thank you very much for sharing your insights with all of us today. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Nerds, as you'd expect, you can find a link to Welcome the Wretched in Defense of the Criminal Alien in our show notes. 
And thank you so much for being back with us in the new year. As always, you can track everything going on at Ericsson Immigration Group on our website, eiglaw.com. And remember, if you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Tell a friend and meet us right back here for another new episode of Immigration Nerds.